0: I look around the world, we so often see devastating evil and its results. We see it on the global scale, all the way down to the local and the personal as well. Lives destroyed, injustices carried out, often unaddressed. And whether people in our culture use the term evil or not, we see these many devastating actions. And some of us likely wonder, why does God allow evil to continue in this world? If God is there, why doesn't he intervene and end the evil now, today? It's a significant question, a valuable one. And today in our text, Jesus will help us to see at least one reason of numerous ones that he doesn't bring it to evil to an end today, and why in fact that's good news for the world. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, we'll pick it up this morning in verse 24. So when the Bible's near you, you can find Matthew 13 on page 819. Page 819. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible or a Bible app just so you can see the text in front of you as we walk through the passage this morning. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. So we're in chapter 13. The smaller numbers are the verse numbers, and I'll mention those together. We'll start with verse 24 and work our way through the text. If you don't own a copy of the Bible for yourself, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift. So following the service at the back of the room, there's a table there, the stack of Bibles there. We'd love for you to just grab one of those, please, and take it with you this morning as our gift to you. So we're continuing our series. We've been in the Gospel of Matthew. We pick it up this morning, Matthew 13, verse 24. He, Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. He said, no, less than gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man sowed, that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. I told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables, and yet he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And His disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them Is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. This morning in our passage, we see this main emphasis. As we live in this world that is marred by evil, we're to patiently persevere as the true kingdom continues its transforming work. And we'll look at our passage this morning by asking two questions. First, how can the kingdom be present when there's so much evil in the world? Second, how can the kingdom be present when it looks so insignificant? And we'll spend the majority of our time on the first of these two questions. So first, how can the kingdom be present when there's so much evil in the world? We see this in verses 24 to 30 and then also verses 36 to 43. Today, we see Jesus continue to teach And as last week, he's teaching using parables. We saw last week that Jesus uses this tool of parable in his teaching where he would take familiar actions, images from the society of that day. And he would teach, teaching something that's more than what's simply on the surface of that image. These parables were also used by Jesus, we saw last week, as a way to give light, more light to those who were opening their eyes, to those who were seeking to hear, to those who were softening their hearts to the message of Jesus. And simultaneously, these parables confirmed those who were closing their own ears, those who were rejecting the message of Jesus. So, Jesus begins this morning, verse 31. He says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in the field. Now, in a moment, we'll look at Jesus' explanation of the parable, but first, let's look at what is the surface level meaning of this. This would have been a familiar reality in the world of that day where, where a farmer goes out to sow seed, and any farmer would seek to sow good seed. He'd plant good seed with the hope of having a good harvest. And so that's what happens. But one night, apparently, while all the workers were asleep, someone else came into the field where the good seed had been sown, and also they sowed weeds. So, where there had been wheat sown, there were now weeds sown as well. And most likely, the plant, uh, uh, scholars think that was planted there, was something called darnel, which is very close to wheat and very difficult to distinguish, especially in the early months of development. So we have here is a, a form of you know, agricultural sabotage of one against the other, and this actually happened in the world of that day. So the Roman law had a way of addressing this if someone did this to someone else's field. The farmer and his workers didn't initially know that these weeds had been sown, but as they began to grow, the workers noticed this. They were both goods and weeds all together. So the workers asked the farmer, did you sow good seed? I'm sure he was like, Yes, I did. So I, I, I did not intentionally sow weeds in my own field. So they say. well, then where did these weeds come from? If you sowed good seed, why are there weeds as well? And the farmer answers, verse 28, an enemy has done this. So someone who's opposed to the farmer has come in and sown these weeds as well. So the workers ask, well, should we go out into the fields? Should we then pull all the weeds? Seems like a reasonable question seems like perhaps that could be the wisest thing to do, but the farmer says no. And the reason is that, that initially it's hard to tell them apart. It becomes clearer as it gets closer to harvest. So if you try to do it too soon, you couldn't tell them apart. By the time you can tell them apart, that their roots are intertwined together. So if you went out just trying to pull up the weeds, you would unintentionally also be uprooting some of the wheat. So you would harm the crop if you tried to pull up the weeds. So the farmer says, wait until the harvest. And the harvest, both will be pulled up. They'll be separated. The weeds will be bundled together and burned. And the wheat will be brought into the barn. So that's just the the surface of what Jesus is speaking of. Then just like last week, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, please explain that to us. That's what we do today. Explain to us the parable of the weeds. What is going on in the story? So jump down to verse 36 and following, and that's where Jesus explains. First, he says that the farmer in the story, the one who sowed the good seed, is the son of man. And that is Jesus referring to himself. We've seen that across the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus has consistently taken this Old Testament imagery and applied it to himself, and that is him. So he's saying he's the one who sowed this seed. The field, he says, represents the world, the entire world. The good seed, he says, is the sons of the kingdom. That is, those who have come to trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and King, they've been brought into his kingdom. Now, children of the king, and the weeds, on the other hand, are the sons of the evil one because they've been sown by Satan. The harvest, Jesus says, is the end of the age pointing to this future judgment that is to come. The, the angels are, are the reapers who go out and bring in the harvest. And Jesus says, at the end of the age, he himself will send his angels out and they will gather, he says, verse 42, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. They'll be thrown into the fiery furnace in a place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it also says, then the righteous... They will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And then very importantly, Jesus concludes verse 43, he who has ears, let him hear. So Jesus then gives this parable to help explain what has been going on in the world. What was going on in the world at the time of Jesus. In fact, what continues to go on in the world today But also to tell us what will happen in the world on this future day. Jesus wants us to see that the world belongs to Him. That the Bible tells us that God created the world in perfection. But sin and evil have entered the world and continue to be present in the world today. So, as Jesus says, there is this evil one, Satan and his forces who are actively at work in the world at every moment. These invisible evil powers are significant and work for evil and destruction in the world. And friends, if you've been with us in Matthew, Jesus has been returning this again and again and again. He wants his followers, he wants us to understand that this invisible reality is truly happening in the world, whether we admit it or not, whether we believe it or not, there are spiritual forces at work. They want to destroy every single person. They want to destroy the gospel of Jesus. They want to destroy the church. They want to destroy you, friend, as well. This then helps explain why evil, sinfulness, seems to so often dominate our world. There is an evil one working to carry out evil, and as Jesus points out in the world, there there are two groups. And all people are part of one group or the other, the wheat or the weeds. Every single one of us are wheat or weeds. Now the Bible tells us that all people are created in the image of God. Every single person created in the image of God. So therefore, every single person has value and dignity as an image bearer. But the Bible also tells us that we're all initially sons, children, of the evil one we're all by birth by nature and by the by the pattern of our own lives rebellious lives every single one of us are children of the evil one we've all gone our own way we all consistently reject Jesus we all want to build our own little kingdom we despise his ways so frequently so we all live these sinful in fact evil rebellious lives We're not all as bad as we might be by the restraining grace of God, but it does mean that none of us, no one is truly, thoroughly good. Not a single one of us. But it raises the question, then, if we're all sons of the evil one, children of the evil one, well, then, who are the children of the kingdom? And how does one become a child of the kingdom? We see that, one... All of us are separated by our sin, but friends, we see the good news in the gospel that Jesus Christ has made a way for a person to be transferred from one kingdom to the other. And this is possible because Jesus Christ, God the Son, took on flesh, came and walked the earth, announcing the good news that his kingdom has come because the king has come. And Jesus lived a perfect, righteous, sinless life the life that you and I were called to live, but none of us have ever perfectly lived. Eventually the evil one, and and so many alive in the days of Jesus, so many of the religious leaders conspired to have Jesus falsely accused and put to death. Then Jesus, the sinless son of God, would go to the cross. And there on the cross endure the punishment, the wrath, the justice, that you and I rightfully deserve. Jesus did not deserve it, but he willfully went to take it in our place. The justice of God was carried out on Christ. He paid for our debt on the cross. Although he was the true king, he chose to be treated as a weed, as described in our parable. He endured a horrific death, was buried, and raised on the third day. And through his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ paid for our rebellion and now has made a way for us to stunningly be made righteous. Not through our own righteousness, but Christ took our sin and he gave to us his righteousness so we can be called in verse 43, the righteous. That is true of each and every Christian. For in Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God was treated as an evil weed so that sinners like us could be transformed into good wheat. It truly is stunning work that Jesus does, but very importantly, this is not accomplished through our own efforts. We don't earn our way from one kingdom to the other. It's not a self-reformation project. It's not accomplished through our own religious devotion. It's not a new life where we seek to be as good as we possibly can. What is necessary to go from one kingdom to the other is spiritual life, and Christ alone has provided that. We're spiritually dead. He makes us alive. And, friend, all of this is grace. And all of it is a gift. It cannot be earned. It must not be earned. It can only be received as a gift by faith. And, friends, this is the story of Christianity, unending grace for undeserving sinners. Friends, That's what Jesus came to bring. So what are we to do in light of this? Listen to the words of Jesus, verse 43. He who has ears, let him hear. We saw last week in the beginning of chapter 13 that, that we have these different responses to the message of Jesus. Friend, you're invited today to receive this good news of Jesus. To receive this gift of transfer from the kingdom of the evil one to the kingdom of of Jesus. Friend, if you're not a Christian, we're so glad that you would join us this morning to give, to give part of your Sunday to be with us. And I understand this is a heavy, daunting topic. You may be thinking, I came to church to hear this? It's weighty. But friend, we understand it's different. It may be offensive. It may be something that actually feels repulsive to you. But we encourage you to keep listening, keep exploring. We want you to know that you're welcome here. As much as you want to explore, you are welcome to explore with us. So that exploration may mean that initially you simply want to come at times like this on Sunday and not talk to anybody else. You are welcome to do that. If in time you want to know more, and you might say, I'd I'd like to, to talk with somebody, maybe to answer some questions. We would love to do that as well. Some of you came with a friend or a family member. If they're a Christian, they would love to tell you more. When you're ready, ask them. They would love to tell you more as well. For those of us who are Christians, as we listen to Jesus' words in our passage, we should feel the weight of this coming judgment. We want to hear clearly what Jesus is saying. He's saying that on the last day, there will be a judgment That all in the world will face. And on our own, we deserve the eternal justice of God. But, friends, we should see the kindness of Jesus in giving this warning. You see that Jesus comes consistently sounding this warning. And in fact, this warning preceded Jesus across the centuries. God has been warning of this looming judgment. And friend, if we read the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus often is issuing this warning. He's saying, This day is coming. And friends, that's a kindness. So when that day comes, we can't say we didn't know, we can't say we were unaware. In kindness, Jesus says that day is coming. Now, in the parable, we see this delay in the harvest, a delay of separating the wheat from the weeds. And so we wonder, well, why the delay? If, if there is this day coming, why does Jesus delay? Friends, we see that because of this delay, evil does continue to flourish in our world. If we follow the news at all, in the past week, just yesterday, today, we see evil all over the place. So so there is this delay, and that it enables evil to to still have a foothold. So why does Jesus delay? Why is there this lengthy time before that day? The Apostle Peter sums it up this way, very helpfully, 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So why the delay, knowing that the delay means evil continues to flourish? Because God is patient. Friends, God is more patient than any of us would ever be. And he's patient, not desiring that any should perish, but that all would repent. So God says, I'll wait that more might hear. I'll wait so that the gospel would go forward that more might have the chance to hear and believe, to repent. Friends, God is patient. He's been extraordinarily patient across the generations. So there's a longer wait so there would be a greater harvest more people would come to believe. Now, if the harvest had happened, let's say, 30 years ago, the world would have been you know, kept from 30 years of evil. That's certainly true. But also, many of us who came to faith in the last 30 years wouldn't have had time to come to believe. So God causes this period of patience, even allowing evil to continue, because he has even greater purposes. That by his patience, the good news would go forward. More would hear and perhaps more would believe. And I understand this entire concept of judgment, of the wrath of God, is a tremendously challenging topic. It takes time to, to work and try to understand what is the wrath of God, what is it not. So many in our city, even if they would call themselves a Christian, would say, I don't believe in any such thing as the wrath of God. So, so how do we think well about God's judgment and his wrath? Author J.I. Packer helpfully says this, God's wrath in the Bible is never a capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. God's wrath in the Bible is something which men choose for themselves. The decisive act of judgment upon the lost is the judgment which they pass upon themselves by rejecting the light that comes to them in and through Jesus Christ. We see that same idea in John chapter 3, verse 18. It says this, whoever believes in him, in Christ, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Christ is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son. Packer continues, no doubt it is true that the subject of divine wrath in the past has been handled speculatively and and even irreverently. No doubt there have been some who have preached wrath and damnation with tearless eyes and no pain in their hearts. Yet if we would know God, it is vital that we face the truth concerning his wrath. However unfashionable it may be and however strong our initial prejudices against it, Otherwise, we shall not understand the gospel of salvation from wrath, nor the propitiatory achievement of the cross, nor the wonder of the redeeming love of God. For many want to say that there is a Jesus without judgment. But if we simply read the gospel accounts, if you're only with us for the gospel of Matthew, We see the true Jesus. And that's what we need is the true Jesus, not a Jesus of our own making, not a Jesus where we selectively grab from various sayings of his. What we need is the true king, the savior and king who came out of great love and in his coming, he announced, he warned of judgment. And he came to take, to bear that judgment in our place. Both of those are true and both of those are essential. Jesus himself came warning. And Jesus himself came to save us from that which he warns us of. Friend, do you see this uniqueness, the beauty of this Savior who bore the judgment that we deserve? So then, what are God's people to do while the harvest is delayed? Even as we live in this evil, marred world, friends, we are to be a people who go and tell of this good news. Friends, Jesus has brought us into the mission, the mission that we saw last week of, of sowing the message of Jesus, of sharing the gospel with us. So we go and tell of this saving King. And so, what should our tone, what should our posture be as we go? Friends, we are to be those who know that we once were judgment deserving weeds. That's who we were. We, we deserve judgment, but we are recipients of grace. We've received grace through Christ, the extravagant mercy of God. So therefore, friends, we must be humble, sober, and loving as we go and tell that others would hear the warning and most of all, respond to Jesus and trust in him. And friend, if you're not a Christian, as I said earlier, God is patient. He does give us more time. By his grace, he's given us Today, that is grace from him. We believe that that you're here today, that you could hear the words of Jesus that we read earlier. But we don't know, none of us do, how much time that we have. So that's why I want to urge you, consider Christ today, turn to Christ today while we have time. Friends, for those of us who are Christians, we see a, a, just a small glimpse in this parable, and the explanation of what is promised for us, when we're referred to as the righteous. Christ has made us righteous. We're referred to in verse 43 as we're brought into the kingdom of our Father. So, friend, you're a child of the King, the glorious King. You are brought into His family. That's a part of this great salvation. And we're told there's a future day, verse 43, where we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our father. We'll be with our father forever and there finally free from suffering. Free from our sin. Free from our shame and our guilt. And finally free from the evil one, Satan. There's a second question in our text as well. This one more briefly. How can the kingdom be present... When it looks so insignificant, when it looks so small. We see this in verses 31 to 35. Jesus then tells us two brief and similar parables. In the first, in verse 31 and 32, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that's planted in a field and grows up to become a large tree. Now the mustard seed in that day was proverbial for its small size. And he says, from this very, very small seed comes a sizable plant, larger than other garden plants, even a tree large enough that birds can come and make nests in its branches. So as Jesus speaks to these Jewish people, they were waiting for, anticipating the coming of a Messiah, this promised king. And they believed when he came, he would have a great kingdom. So this parable that promises a big growth, a tree at the end, that wasn't surprising. What's surprising in this parable is the beginning. The mustard seed beginning, the seemingly small, insignificant beginning of the kingdom, that's what was surprising to the hearers. Because they were not interested in a small beginning. They'd been small long enough. They're ready for the Messiah to come to establish his kingdom, to throw off the Romans and and restore the power of this kingdom for God's people. But now Jesus comes and says, no, but when the kingdom comes, it will be tiny almost unnoticeable, so insignificant in its beginning. And as that plays out in Jesus' ministry, it becomes a a part of why people are opposed to him. Because Jesus is now teaching and ministering. Crowds are coming, that's true. But here's this humble teacher with no wealth to his name. In time, his Sort of following would get even smaller. As Jesus would go to the cross, even so many of his closest followers would scatter so that when he's on the cross, there's only a handful left. And it would look like this small kingdom, whatever it is, is is finally being dashed as Jesus dies on a cross. It looks like a failed king, a failed kingdom as he's buried. That appears to be the very lowest point, but it is there that actually Christ is victorious. So he rises on the third day. And then from his death and resurrection, he sends forth his disciples, his people into the world to spread this good news. So the kingdom would be smaller, more insignificant than they thought, but also in the end, it would be broader than what the people had even hoped for. In the parable, Jesus points to these birds coming in and and nesting in its trees. Seems to be a subtle hint connected to some allusions in the Old Testament to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, as birds. We see this in Ezekiel. So Jesus is saying, in this kingdom that is to come, it's it's going to be broader, wider than the Jews. It will be for all the nations will come in and find rest and restoration, redemption and life in the kingdom of Jesus. Then Jesus gives a second comparison in a brief parable, verse 33. Then at verse 33, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So leaven or yeast, as you know, is a tiny substance that's placed in dough, looks so small and unimportant, but in time, the leaven spreads its influence throughout the entire lump, silently affects the entire lump of dough that you have. Now, I don't know how to bake bread, but I like bread. I love bread, in fact. My mom, when I was a kid, would sometimes bake bread. And so she would, you know, prepare it, and then she would put it, and it just had to, like, sit there. And I think sometimes it was, like, on the counter. Sometimes I think it was in the refrigerator. I'm not sure, but we just had to wait, which was quite frustrating as a kid. But as we waited, occasionally I would, like, you violate, and I would look underneath there to see what's going on. And it was always remarkable that in time, this small lump of dough became a larger lump of dough as it's rising as yeast or leaven was doing what it's intended to do. And Jesus is saying, similarly, the kingdom of God starts small, but it would spread and spread. It appears so insignificant, but its power is truly transformational. From obscure beginnings in Jerusalem, this band would scatter And no one would have ever thought that this little group of people could impact the great Roman Empire. And yet in time, the gospel brings transformation. So many from all different backgrounds come to saving faith in Christ. And God's kingdom continues to spread around the world. And so often, like yeast, in insignificant, obscure ways, the gospel goes forward. Sometimes we see this happen as the gospel goes into nations around the world today where it appears from the outside there's little access to the gospel. So, for instance, in recent decades, we've seen this both in China and in Cuba. Countries where there seem to be very little access to the gospel So from the outside, you know, Christians have speculated what might be going on there. But as we've come to find out in recent years, the gospel has been thriving and growing. In fact, there are very many believers in both of those countries. How? How is that possible? The obscure, small beginnings grows and spreads and transforms Recently, in the nation of Nepal, which just a few decades ago, there were no Christians there. But there's this movement happening all across the country. That's how the kingdom works. And for instance, we pray for, for two of the peoples that we as a church are committed to. The Turks and the Southern Pashtun. Currently, just a few believers of both. Among the Pashtuns, in particular, a tiny group of believers. So do we have hope in in our love and and support and praying for them. It is this, that one day, might we find out, we had no idea how many Pashtun believers there really were. There were some in Kandahar, there were some in, in Kabul. There are some in Athens, Greece, among refugees. There are some in Fremont, California. And so the gospel is spreading and growing. And the same is true among Turks, friends. That's why we have hope in this, because of how the gospel, the kingdom expands. And, friends, the same is true as we plant churches in greater Boston. New church we've helped plant in Bedford. Our hope there, our strategy isn't for some explosive growth. But It is that as the gospel goes forward in that simple space this morning, in a rented facility, folding chairs, pretty unimpressive. But that, in months and years, decades, the gospel would spread, would take root, the church would grow, that by God's grace, might be there for decades preaching this same gospel. And friends, it's true because of the obscurity, the insignificance, of the kingdom, it's so tempting to think that other visible things are infinitely more important. And we live in a city with many great institutions, massive buildings downtown owned by incredibly large wealthy banks, great universities, so many organizations that do really world-shaping things, and those are good things. And Christians are to be scattered into the midst of those. God will scatter each of you into places like that. But while you're there, don't don't mistake what's truly ultimate. It is the kingdom and the spread of that kingdom. So then as you're spread into those places, you're there to point others to Christ, to glorify God in your work and in your studies. But don't begin to think that those things are the ultimate things. They're valuable They're meaningful, but they're not ultimate. The kingdom of Jesus is apparently obscure. It seems insignificant, but friends, it is unstoppable in the end. And then in verse 34 and 35, Matthew, the author of our gospel, inspired by the Spirit, gives us another explanation of what Jesus is doing in these parables. We mentioned last week it's challenging to understand exactly what is a parable, what are the purposes of a parable. We saw some of that last week as as Jesus himself quoted from Isaiah. But now Matthew gives us another sort of vantage point of what is happening in these parables. And he quotes from Psalm 78. And the author of Psalm 78, we believe to be Asaph, in this psalm he retells the history of God's people. Weaving together the historical working of God, telling of God's wondrous saving works. And Matthew is saying that now Jesus was revealing things hidden in the past. So Asaph, in Psalm 78, he tells things that these were not new facts, but Asaph faithfully weaves them together to elevate, help us to see the grand saving work of God. And Matthew saying that's what Jesus is doing now. The news of the promised king has been across the generation, but Jesus is now opening it up to see more and more of the sweep of God's great redemption plan. And just as Asaph told of a great salvation in the Exodus, Jesus has come to accomplish an even greater salvation through his cross and resurrection. But we wonder today, though, so what are we to do? In light of what we see in the words of Jesus, what are we to do? And the first thing is this, friend, hear Jesus and respond. Friend, listen to Jesus' words, verse 43, he who has ears, let him hear. Friend, if you're not a Christian, we pray you'll have ears to hear. And by hearing, that might mean exploration for weeks and months. But friend, some of you have been hearing for a while. And perhaps today, by faith, you would turn to Christ. We would love for you to do that, even this morning. For those of us who are Christians, we must join this mission of telling others. If Jesus is accurate, and we believe he is, that there is a judgment to come. And if Jesus has provided salvation in himself, we are to go and tell every Christian is to be a part of that mission. So, wherever God has placed you, friends, we don't think it's an accident that you live where you live, that you're on the campus where you are, or the workplace. There are a number of reasons you're there, but one of those is that you might be a light in that place, that you might point people to Christ in that place. That's the mission that Jesus has brought us into. And we'll have to guard our hearts. It's a temptation because of the weightiness of this judgment to just ignore it or act like it's not so. And we lose our urgency. So, friend, we're not to be frantic, but we are to be urgent that we might go and tell. And friends, as we live in this evil marred world, the third thing we want to do is live distinctively in the midst of this world. We're to live distinctively in the midst of this world. Consistently, Jesus, the apostles, call us to distinctive living. Now, Jesus in this parable says a day is coming when there will be separation, but that's not yet. We're to be distinctive in the midst of this world, distinctive by how we live, not by where we live. So as Christians, we're not to all say, you know what? It's an evil marred world. We should all move to rural New Hampshire. We're going to all buy homes or build homes in this one village. And we're going to hold up together until Jesus returns. Christians have done that in reality or actually functionally done that while still living in cities like this. My friend, the call for us is to live distinctively in the midst of the world. For the sake of those around us. So live distinctively on your campus and in your workplace and in your neighborhood and in your family, not withdrawing from it, but guided and empowered by the spirit in the midst of it. And then lastly, friends, we'll have to patiently persevere. It's not easy to live in this evil marred world. There's much pain, there's much disappointment, it's often confusing. We have questions about it. But so we live with perseverance, endurance, believing that Jesus is telling us the truth, that the kingdom is at work. In obscurity, and in insignificance, it is, it is growing. It's advancing. And an end is coming. So friend, empowered by the spirit, let us persevere together. For the weeks to come, in the months to come, we want to patiently persevere. In the years to come, patiently persevere. For decades to come, perhaps, patiently persevere. God is faithful. God is at work. Patiently persevere together.